Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my background at rajbalkaran.com slash academia. But more importantly, I have the pleasure of speaking with Pat Niebuchadnezzar, Assistant Professor uh, at the Department of Religious Studies at the College of William and Mary. So we'll be speaking today about Patton's book, A Genealogy of Devotion, Bhakti, Tantra, Yoga, and Sufism in North India. Maybe our first question, Patton is how did this book come about? Well, this book uh, is a sort of expansion and revision of my PhD dissertation. So um, when you talk about that, I could you know, take you all the way back to my beginnings in undergrad with religious studies and getting interested in, in Hindu traditions. And there's a story that begins there. But sort of more recently, I, I started my graduate training at a Indiana University, and I was very interested in this topic of Tantra. And then when I went to Columbia for my PhD, my PhD advisor, um, John Stratton Hawley, Jack Hawley was, you know, one of the preeminent scholars of bhakti or Hindu devotion in, uh, in the world, really. And uh, through taking classes with him, I got more and more interested in bhakti and wanted to also keep up my interest in Tantra, and so started looking at um, the way that bhakti poets um, talk about tantric yogis and the ways that tantra and yoga uh, inform the kind of bhakti that I was learning about. Um, and a, a sort of uh, meanwhile, I'm you know gaining uh, in my PhD program uh, language training, and I was doing some uh, language immersion programs in India that were based in in Jaipur. And just outside of Jaipur is uh, a religious community, old religious community um, known as Galta, that's became ended up becoming a major research site for me. So while in Jaipur learning. Hindi, I spent a lot of time talking to um, people at this, at Galta, this beautiful, it's in a gorge just outside of Jaipur, um, you know, it goes back to uh, the early 1500s, probably at least. Um, and so I had that sort of physical site in India that I was connecting to bhakti poetry that I was reading in, in classes and, and there in India, um, and just trying, starting to ask different, different questions. Um, about uh, about bhakti in a big picture. How do we? How does the scholarly community conceive of this Hindu devotion that um, is connected to the term bhakti? And uh, you know, many people would say this is the sort of mainstream religiosity of India today, or of Hinduism today. Is they would they would probably many would probably say that it's bhakti. So um, how did it become so powerful? Um, and particularly in North India, I felt like that the narrative explaining the rise of this uh, Hindu devotion 
hadn't really been told. So I wanted to to tell that story of um, how and why bhakti rises up in this particular period, which ends up being the, the early modern period, the, the Mughal period in North India, and uh, how that rise was connected to, um, you know, maybe had negative effects on other kind of forms of religiosity um, that had been previously dominant in Indian history. And so uh, there was a sort of question looking looking forward, you know, how did these things develop? Um, and a question kind of looking back, a kind of genealogical question of um, how did bhakti become, um, get to where it is today? And also how did tantra um, come to be kind of perceived in India, uh, largely along the lines of of kind of disreputable black magic or kind of uh, mumbo jumbo, hocus pocus, um, which is, you know, of course, different than how it's often, the word Tantra is often perceived here in, in the United States and and uh, in North America. So maybe um, it's clear that your book is about, uh, your book being called A Genealogy of Devotion. It's tracing Indian devotionalism uh, from the medieval period uh, to present. Um, prior to diving into the heart of your argument, why don't you present for our audience um, what you mean by the term Tantra here, especially as it may be different from how it's used in modern parlance? Um, that's harder to do than, than one might expect. Tantra is one of these words like uh, religion that's hard to just give it an easy definition that everyone would agree upon. And it's also a complicated word in that it's, um, while the word itself, of course, you know, is, is an indigenous word that goes all the way back to early in, in Indian history, the way that it's used today as a sort of a category, a type of Indian religiosity is really not how it was ever used um, uh, by Hindus themselves or Indians themselves. So it's a sort of, you know, the way we talk about it is as is a sort of a, it's a constructed academic category. Um, but I think people in the in North America, for the most part, would tend when they hear the word tantra, probably think of something like spiritual sex. Um, that's a, a very common association. And um, oddly enough, in India, there are, um, while there are some sexual connotations to the word, it's more often linked with um, with black magic, as I said before. So neither of those are they're, they're both kind of racy, um, you know, not necessarily good connotations um, on either side, uh, depending on your positioning. But um, historically, um, there's been all this fascinating work that's been done by this group of tantric studies scholars just in the past couple decades, led by um, Alexei Sanderson at um, Oxford and then also many of his students. There's others as well, but he's sort of been leading the charge and his students have been leading the charge and really doing this um, intense, thorough, textual um, research that's been improving our knowledge of the tantric traditions, and we see that um, these kind of associations that we that are that are modern, both in India, tantra as black magic, and in uh, North America and Europe, tantra is largely spiritual sex. Neither of them are a very good fit for what tantra was historically. So I have a chapter in in my book. It's not the that's not the central point of my book by any means, but I do have a 
a key um, lengthy chapter um, early in the book in which I try to say, okay, what was tantric, the tantric tradition historically? Um, how is it not um, transgressive? As many um, scholars have said that tantra is fundamentally transgressive about breaking uh, the rules of orthodoxy, breaking social codes of various times, especially in matters related to sexuality and, and sexual fluids and codes surrounding um, death. Um, and that, that, that dimension is certainly present. There's, it's not just made up, but that there is also a sort of mainstream um, tantric tradition that was very important, particularly in the medieval period. So trying to chart out exactly what that tantra looks like. Um, it's a tradition that in which ritual is really um, at the heart of the tradition. Um, ritual techniques that are specifically tantric. And the reason what makes them specifically tantric is these ritual techniques are laid out in texts that we can call tantras. Some of the texts are called tantras. Others are called samhitas. Others are called agamas but it's, uh, it's common to just term all of these tantric texts tantras. And so as an academic category, I think what gives it coherence is to, is to say that these ritual techniques are all found in this body of scripture called tantras. And what's unique about these bo this body of, scripture, um, of scriptures is that it claims to uh, be a revelation given straight um, from the gods that includes but actually transcends the Vedas, which you can imagine um, uh, was very challenging to traditional kind of um, Brahminical sentiments where the Vedas were, were it. Um, so these ritual techniques, um, there was something new about them in that they, the use of mantras was at the heart of, of tantric practice. So while the term tantra wasn't really used as a uh, or a sort of genre of religiosity at that time, there was a term um, that translates essentially as um, the, the path of mantras, the mantra marga. And this was almost a synonym for the tantric traditions, and it shows how central the use of mantras was to, uh, to this kind of ritual tantric religiosity I'm talking about. And here a mantra is a sort of the sonic equivalent of a god. It's a specific tantric understanding of a mantra. And these are mantras basically serve uh, these, you know, it, these sounds, um, sound forms of deities were what made the rituals effective. Um, and what was also unique about this tantric practice is um, unlike some previous forms of um, popular Indian religiosity, there was sort of it's a largely, the tantric universe is kind of amoral. It's a power, it's the divine is power that infuses the universe and these tantric ritual techniques can help human practitioners access that power and employ that power. And that can be done for sort of spiritual purposes in order to become saved, liberated, um, but it can also be used for pragmatic worldly purposes to heal sickness, to defeat enemies, um, to bring rain um, in times of drought, any of these kind of things you might um, utilize a tantric ritual for. Uh, so there's a, as quick as I can get to kind of give you a sense of, of tantra, to, to get a better sense of how it becomes um, 
black magic in um, in India and spiritual sex in America and Europe. Um, the work of Hugh Urban is especially good for, for that. And that's a little bit out of the scope of my particular book. I think that was a, a great summation of um, a fundamentally um, undefinable term like Tantra. At very least, it demarcates um, the Indian taboos as well as the modern appropriations of the term and gives us a bit of a sense of it being a bona fide religious path um, that is geared towards the generation of power, primarily through mantric means for remediation, for worldly aims, for uh, liberation. Uh, one quick question I have for you in terms of talking about um, deriving power, amoral power. Would you say necessarily that Tantra in this context is related to the Devi, to the goddess, who is personified power? Um, it depends, I guess, how we would conceive the goddess. So Tantra is a, is a tradition that I would say um, transcends sort of religious boundaries as we typically understand them. So there was Hindu Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, Jain Tantra, um, and so, and even at this at this period of time in this medieval period, um, you know, most scholars I think at this point would agree that you know even to say Hindu tantra is a bit anachronistic because you have Vaishnava tantra, Shaiva tantra. You don't have a sort of united Hindu front. Um, and really, most of these developments are happening um, most importantly in the sphere of Shaivism. So that is religion in which Shiva is the the primary, uh, the most powerful deity, but closely connected to the rise of Shaivism was the the rise of Shaktism, right? Um, the rise of in, of forms of of religiosity in which the goddess Devi is central, um, and it, it seems to be the case that um, you know a lot of this still remain you know needs further scholarly exploration, but that many of these um, goddess traditions. Um, may have been sort of brought into the Brahminical fold, into the Sanskritic fold, um, through um, being incorporated into Shaivism. Um, so many of these goddesses were seen as the powers of Shiva. So in that way, um, Shaktism and Shaivism um, were really key dimensions of Tantra um, that kind of grew up together. Um, but that being said, um, there are sort of Buddhist notions of power um, that, uh, in, that in tantric forms of Buddhism that parallel the sort of Hindu notion of Shakti, which would be sort of the power of the goddess, a, a, a cosmic power, which is what tantricas tap into that is always, you know, gendered feminine, um, but that I think um, you could say exist across traditions. While that word wouldn't be used, Shakti, in say a Buddhist tradition, the similar concept would be there. Um, so I think how explicitly it's connected to Devi, the goddess, would vary from tradition to tradition, but a sort of femininely gendered cosmic power, I think, is at the heart of, of tantric traditions in general. I think in your short time, you've probably elucidated for our listeners tantra uh, probably better than they'll come across <laughs> in terms of how we understand tantra in our culture. So thank you. Now, maybe tell us more to the heart of your book. Um, on the genealogy of, of bhakti of devotion, 
Um, you can approach it however you wish. You could either take, you could either tell us how tantra relates, tantric practices relate to the argument you're making, or you can start by saying, you know, what is the essential argument you're making, whichever you prefer. I mean, re- really, I, I view this um, book as it's most fundamentally about about bhakti, hence the title, A Genealogy of Devotion, hence bhakti, again, a sort of tomb, a, a term we loosely translate as devotion, Hindu devotion. Um, that's really the star of this narrative I'm telling, but I see um, Tantra, yoga, Sufism, and asceticism as kind of key key co-stars in the story. And part of one of the basic moves I'm making is to say that um, bhakti, when you just call it devotion, um, first and foremost, and there's been a lot of work done on this already, that there's a tendency to, to have sort of Protestant Christian associations for what is meant by devotion. Um, and that um, many scholars of bhakti have countered this by saying, well, look at the etymology of bhakti. It has the, the etymology comes from a Sanskrit root. Um, uh, the word comes from a Sanskrit root. Um, budge, which has to do especially with um, sharing and with participation. So scholars have taken this as sort of a jumping off point to point out how, in contrast to certain Protestant Christian assumptions about what devotion is, there's often a sort of active engagement, a sort of social dimension um, that involves a sharing with other bhaktas, other devotees, but also a sharing with God that is active. It's, it takes real agency and it's very embodied. These have been kind of key points of a number of scholarly interventions in this field um, by some of the key scholars being uh, Christian Novetsky, um, Jack Hawley once again, um, Barbara Holdridge, uh, Karen Pachillas, there are others, but they've been especially important in kind of making some of the points that I was just making. But I think um, what remained, um, even after that work, what hadn't really been done as far as I could tell was to show how intertwined bhakti historically has been, this what we just call devotion, with things that we tend to call yogic or tantric or ascetic. We, we get, you know, we scholars obviously need terms and categories to make sense of the stuff we study, but the world is a lot messier than that in practice. And once you keep using a category like asceticism, in contrast to bhakti or tantra or yoga or Sufism, you start to just by nature of the separate words and separate categories, it's easy to think of the actual, them as actual things that really are completely autonomous, self-existing things and that's, of course, not how the world or history or cultures actually work. So part of the project was to show, um, to sort of not try to give Bhakti search for some definition that's going to be always accurate. There's, there is no such thing. The key concepts in any given culture, the meanings shift based on the specific context the word is being used in. So my thought was that um, bhakti historically, it changed the meaning of the concept of the term changes depending on the historical period it's being used in, um, the region that it's being used in. But more even than that, that that the, the meaning of the concept of bhakti of devotion 
um, changes depending on its relationship to other key terms, other key concepts, other key modes of religiosity. So the ones that I thought were particularly interesting and hadn't been focused on were asceticism, yoga, um, and tantra. How does Bhakti's relationship with these um, sort of other modes, key concepts in Hindu religiosity kind of help to define what Bhakti is at different points in its historical development? And then when you get to a certain point, you have to also add in Islam or more specifically um, Sufism to that picture and how it is how, what is Bhakti's relationship with Sufism and that, you know, how that relationship forms is key to understanding what Bhakti is. So um, that was one of the sort of interventions um, I wanted to make. So that's uh, all fascinating. Let's hold off for a second on Sufism and let's maybe drill down into two of these three supporting characters. So we talk about this, this work being about the journey uh, or the nature of, of devotionalism and bhakti. We talk about um, bhakti's interactions with these uh, sporting characters or these other traditions, uh, practices, uh, tantra, yoga, asceticism. We've talked about tantra. Tell us about yoga, asceticism, maybe a brief definition, how you're using them, how are they the same or how are they different and um, about their overlap with devotionalism. Right. Okay. Um, again, uh, a tough one um, to answer quickly, but I'll start with, with yoga. I mean, yoga is one of the hardest words to define quickly. Again, a, a word that has very contextually specific meanings, um, but how I, the way that I'm concerned with it in the book is primarily as a sort of assortment of methods of meditation and mind and body asceticism, sort of techniques for harnessing oneself. So if yoga, um, the etymology of the word yoga, it comes from a root yuj, um, one of the key meanings of which is to harness. So I think there's, there's almost, some, all, almost always some sort of harnessing going on with yoga, some sort of discipline, but more specifically a harnessing type of discipline happening. Um, almost any form of yoga, but um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in um, methods of meditation and techniques of mind and body that are meant to either bring about spiritual realization or extraordinary power. Um, that's sort of um, the definition of yoga I was using as opposed to sort of more broad definitions of yoga just as, as a spiritual discipline or as union um, of some kind. Um, uh, on the topic of asceticism, again, this is just one of these huge conceptual words. And um, here, I mean it more in its kind of narrow sense where you're typically talking about um, uh, going against the grain of the body's typical um, animal instincts, right? Um, we, the body wants food, it wants sleep, it wants sex. Asceticism typically um, goes against the grain of these um, biological instincts and desires, but with some sort of spiritual purpose in mind, some goal in mind. Maybe you, through acts of asceticism, often um, the, the kind of um, easy translation or the, the term, um, multiple terms could be used, but the Sanskrit term I focus on is tapas, which um, 
can be boiled down to really translated into the word heat. And asceticism is the sort of physical practices that go against the grain of, of um, biological instincts and desires and thereby produce a heat that is empowering to the ascetic. Um, and that might mean kind of re get, getting superpowers, and, but it also, you know, is connected to um, uh, a sort of lifestyle often that might involve a, cert involve a certain amount of renunciation from um, normal social life. Um, and in connection with all that, it, in the Indian um, context, traditionally, ascetics of various types have been given uh, a special authority. Um, so not a sort of superpower type of power, but just been highly respected and revered for um, picking up the, the difficult um, path that they have in whether they're searching for liberation or more in search of, of powers there traditionally have been uh, a source of awe and reverence and even fear in, in India. Our asceticism, um, in terms of tapas, I often think of the word austerity. Mm -hmm. Obviously, tapas is literally heat, as you say, but the word austerity comes to mind for tapas. Or um, given that uh, asceticism and bhakti, devotionalism, uh, as you point out in your book, are often or have often historically been thought of as um, opposed in some way or, or dichotomous or structural opposites. Um, and your work really, um, really softens that binary. Would you agree? For sure. And that's, um, again, kind of a, a point that I wanted to make. Um, and it's, I'm not the first to say this. Um, Timothy Doge, for example, has said some really interesting things about this sort of false dichotomy between aestheticism and bhakti. But I try to, to draw that out even more with um, the traditions that I'm looking at, you know, I, I focus on a community known as the, the Ramanandis, a bhakti monastic community. And I sort of use them as a case study to make a larger point um, uh, that's, that even stretches into the medieval period in the, what I call the tantric age, you know, before bhakti was quite as dominant as it became. Um, and there seems to be a sort of continuous presence of even beyond asceticism, and organized asceticism that we can call monasticism. So ascetics organized into monastic orders that then have their own institutions. And throughout India's history, um, monastic institutions um, seem to have been incredibly sort of enmeshed with political power and thus, um, and also with, with the economic sphere in terms of trade, um, and thus to have just been major players in sort of the overall social life of India throughout India's history. Now the specific ascetic orders and monastic orders in that are, you know, most influential, most powerful change from period to period. And, th and that those changes are very consequential. Um, but at the same time that we can chart out um, those changes, which I try to do in the book to some extent, especially showing how sort of bhakti monastic orders rise to prominence, um, whereas, um, you know, tantric ones may have been dominant in a previous era. At the same time, it's very interesting to note that um, this sort of continuous um, important presence of monastic institutions in religious, political, and economic life um, in India.
So, and why don't you, we've talked about these um, supporting actors, if you will, of Tantra and yoga, asceticism more broadly. So maybe this is a good time to talk about Sufism and the, the influence um, of Islam in India. Okay. Um, for sure. Um, part of what, <clears throat> excuse me, um, another sort of intervention I wanted to make was to um, really try to make clear the influence, or maybe influence isn't even the right word, the sort of um, key resonance with the Sufi Islamic tradition that the that North India's um, early modern Bhakti tradition had. And also to point out just how huge of a sort of cultural and social shift occurred beginning with the uh, Sultanate period in in India. So, you know, for, for decades now, um, and for good reason, the, the big focus has been on the British colonial impact on India and, you know, how much that changed India's future, um, how Indians had to respond to the, um, not just sort of um, material, physical forms of oppression, but also um, to the sort of ways of thinking, the specific categories that were, um, they were, you know, that were put upon them by Orientalist scholars and the British colonizers themselves. Um, So we're talking about epistemological shifts. And a lot of that work has been, you know, hugely important, but sometimes what gets gets lost is um, how incredibly impactful this sort of um, previous period in Indian history was when you have essentially these uh, Persianized Turks coming in from um, Iran and Central Asia and settling, um, conquering much of North and Central India and and settling gradually over, um, you know, vast swaths of the Indian subcontinent and how this um, this Persian culture, which is not to say, which is not the same thing at all um, as Islam, but Islam was a part of this broader um, Persianate culture. Um, to have this um, this Persianate culture interact with um, a sort of uh, with the Sanskritic tradition of Orthodox Hinduism, that brought about major changes um, to Indian society and. Obviously, you know, good scholarship has been done on that as well, but I hadn't seen the narrative of bhakti, of of devotionalism's development sort of put into that context. And so that was something that I wanted to do and something that in, you know, um, present day India, where you have, uh, you know, Hindu nationalist rhetoric um, of both very soft and subtle forms and other more explicit forms kind of widely present. The idea of explicitly connecting um, an Islamic, you know, mystical tradition and its literature and worldviews and attitudes and values to, um, you know, the proud tradition of Hindu bhakti, which is, um, has, has often been nationalized in the Hindu, um, in the sort of, Bhakti movement narrative 
um, there is some political import there. And I think it's even more of an important sort of point to draw out um, in today's political climate, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And maybe you can say a little bit more about that in terms of um, maybe connected dots more explicitly in terms of what your findings on the genealogy of devotion in India, how they bear on uh, many modern notions of um, Hinduism um, mm. and Hindu nationalism even. You know, that's not a topic I take up so explicitly in the book, but I'll try my best to to speak to it. I mean, at least I don't explicitly get, I don't trace things so far into the modern period that I take up Hindu nationalism explicitly. But um, the larger argument of the book is certainly in conversation with other kind of narratives of Hinduism that would try to completely exclude um, Islamic influence, right? And I think, um, you know, it's it's fairly obvious that when you look at, when, as a historian, you, and you look at, um, you know, the Sultanate period, which we say really begins around the beginning of the 13th uh, century, again, with these Persianate Turks, and then you have, um, shortly following that, the, these Mongol invasions in Central Asia that cause um, tons of Persians, including some of the most important literati and um, just cultural elites to um, all of a sudden migrate to Delhi. So sort of oddly in the span of, you know, less than 50 years, you have um, India where there's just, was a, North India was a place where you had, you know, some, you would have um, raids from um, uh, Muslim Afghans and Persian um, Iranian um, Muslims um, into North Indian cities, but no sort of extended presence. But then with the Sultanate, you have an extended attempt to build a Muslim civilization in India that is, um, you know, initially a sort of uh, out on its own. But then once you have this Mongol invasion, um, you know, very, which happens right after the establishment of, this, of the Sultanate, suddenly Delhi becomes literally the center of Islam um, in the Eastern world. Um, and he, Delhi becomes a sort of, um, you know, a place to come if you're a Islamic cultural elite. And so initially there's a sort of, um, the Islamic presence expands in urban centers um, as the Sul Delhi Sultanate's expanding its power. But connected with that is the rise of Sufism. And so I don't think I fully answered your question before. It's Sufism, once again, one of these hard to define terms. There's no one kind of Sufi. There are all kinds of Sufis, warrior Sufis, orthodox Sufis, um, heterodox, mystical Sufis, Sufi literati. Um, and sometimes those sort of types mixing together in any one individual Sufi. But to try to briefly characterize Sufism, it's typically understood as mystical Islam. And it's uh, like Tantra, it is a um, tradition in which uh, initiation is key. So um, the interesting thing about both Tantra and Sufism in that regard is that these are, in some sense, secretive, esoteric, initiatory traditions. They require initiation yet they both became incredibly, they became popular traditions. So how does that work? Well, these, um, those who get initiated um, 
and I'll, I'll go back to the Sufi context specifically now, um, kind of become seen as um, ideal Muslims. So they, were, they tend to have a mystical bent and an aesthetic bent, but Sufis tended to be less about following the law and the letter of, of the Sharia than with um, an intimate um, devotional and mystical relationship with God um, based on, on love. And um, a Sufi sheikh, a sort of master Sufi, would you know have a, a host of disciples, but they would be sources of teaching, teachings for the greater you know Muslim populace, and not just Muslims. Really, these became um, popular religious figures for Indians in general. Um, they sort of cross religious boundaries. Um, so the sites where these um, Sufi sheikhs would live. Um, Indians would flock to them to, again, hear their sort of spiritual and ethical teachings, but also to perform certain rituals. There would be song and dance. There would be um, food for the poor at these um, these Sufi retreats and Sufi hostels. And then when um, the Sufi was basically thought to have sort of have God's ear, have a special relationship and intimacy with God based on their level of, of spiritual achievement and that devote, popular devotees could sort of tap into that, could sort of seek healing or sort of um, pragmatic daily needs through um, the Sufi sheikh. And that's why these, they became such popular figures. And then it got to the point that when Sufis would die, their shrines became popular sites for devotion as well. And the Sufis' power seemed to only increase, the Sufi saints' power, that is, seemed to only increase um, after their death. So these very same things that devotees, um, the populace would want, they could ask the Sufi for, um, to ask God for, that is, um, at the shrine. So basically as sort of a sultanate, Persianate um, literary culture and political power is spreading across from North India outward, the same thing is happening with popular Sufism. Um, and this is sort of the key context for understanding um, the development of North India's Bhakti movement, um, which really doesn't get off the ground until about the mid 15th century. And at that point, you know, Persianate, um, Islamicate culture and popular Sufism are very well established in North and Central India. Um, so, I mean, one of the points that I'm trying to make um, is that sometimes there's a, there's a narrative of a single bhakti movement, the bhakti movement that sort of starts in the Tamil South and then devotion kind of spreads like a wildfire from the South to the North up to India and India's, um, and, it, and it reaches North India last. And um, that, that bhakti movement narrative is, you know, incredibly brilliantly treated in Jack Hawley's recent book, um, A Storm of Songs. So that's not, really the key um, focus of my book, but it is um, relevant insofar as to say that, in fact, a single Bhakti movement sort of um, confuses the picture. Really, you have individual Bhakti movements happening within each region in the languages of those regions and uh, according to the specific cultures of those, each of those regions. And one of my points is to say that North India's Bhakti movement, because of when it's when it starts and where it is, 
um, is unique from other bhakti movements and that happened earlier in um, regions south of um, the north of North India, um, and that it is much more, as I say, Sufi inflected, um, much more influenced by uh, the Persianate and Islamicate presence than uh, the forms of bhakti you see in in other regional bhakti movements. Um, one of the reasons I personally quite enjoy this book, I mean, I, I, my my duty is to to help scholars like you get their work out in terms of Hindu studies in a way that the public can grapple with, the interest of the public, and so I don't really um, take sides in these arguments. I've had I've had um, scholars come here um, making arguments that I firmly uh, resonate with and that I firmly don't, and it's it's not my place to to um, to, to arbitrate that, but, but I will say in this moment that, um, the one of, one of the ways in which this book resonates is that the narrative, uh, at least the narrative when I first was introduced to the academic study of religion, which it would have been about 15 years ago, the narrative of bhakti starting in the South and, and just spreading like wildfire, it never entirely sat well. And this, uh, and having said that it was, it, it's not really, um, it wasn't my interest to pursue those kinds of questions. I pursue more literary questions, uh, mythological questions. And so part of what, what deeply resonates is that um, your work really shows that um, bhakti flowers locally and regionally, and it's, it's cross-pollinated by these other very, very rich um, Rich entities, like Sufism, Yoga, Tantra, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's, in my view, deeply resonates. Um, one thing that um, I think I'll ask you about your last section because that may be a, a, one of the most surprising um, cross pollinations, um, especially I think for people who are more familiar with the Hindu tradition or even practicing it, is this idea that. Uh, devotionalism and tantra um, could be close dance partners and so if i'm not mistaken you set up your last chapter with this with this um what do you call it your last section yes you call it bhakti religion and tantric magic <laughs> and although you've touched on this um i think it's a really um important point to drill down on of this sort of um this idea of bhakti being religion and tantra being magic mm-hmm. at very best. And, and could you say more about that, especially in terms of what you conclude in your book? Okay, so bhakti religion and, and tantric magic, it's, uh, it's this dichotomy that I think you, you, it's not universal in contemporary India, um, but it is very common, as I think I mentioned earlier, to hear Bhakti described a sort of good, wholesome religion. That's even if those words, the word religion isn't used, that sort of sense is there, is that this is good, wholesome religion. Um, whereas Tantra, um, again, not universally, but very commonly is associated it with, um, again, black magic, um, things that are disreputable. There's, there's suspicion surrounding it or fear or skepticism. Um, it's got a certain dark cloud um, hangover for many people. And I, I complicate this in the book by saying, talking about how, in fact, Tantra is very much integrated into modern India. Um, 
but that doesn't sort of um, negate the fact that this discourse is there and very common in which you have a sort of good bhakti religion and bad tantric magic. So the typical assumption has been um, that, well, that must be because of, um, you know, colonial influence, orientalist influence, right? You have these ideas of religion and magic are part of a Western um, Abrahamic sort of context. And so the British must have come in, these European scholars must have come in and sort of defined um, tantric modes of religiosity as, um, you know, savage, um, irrational magic, where say, we're actually seeing some similarities between Christianity and the devotion of Hinduism, and not exactly celebrating bhakti, but saying there's at least something valid here. This is resembles religion. And, you know, I, I cite some, I quote some um, Orientalist scholars like Monier Williams who make comments like this. And so it seems to be um, that there's this sort of open and shut case where clearly this perception of bhakti as kind of religion and tantra as magic must come from the colonial period. And Part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to is to say that's kind of what happens sometimes with the sort of emphasis on colonialism and British um, and European influence is it is easy to sort of miss historical continuities between pre-modern India and modern India. It's easy to attribute too much to the British. Um, clearly, colonial impact, European Orientalist impact was humongous. But in this particular case of how bhakti and tantra are perceived, um, one of the key points of my book is to draw out that you see these distinctions being made by the bhakti poets of early modern North India. Um, I scoured the um, bhakti literature, hagiographies, poems, and songs of this period and looking for references to yoga, tantra, and asceticism and, uh, and to yogis. And, and you often see the primary sort of representative of Tantra in the early modern period was um, a group known as the Nat Yogis. And you often see these Nat Yogis along with other um, Tantric figures like Shaktas and other yogic figures um, and aesthetics. You often see them sort of caricatured, but not just caricatured, um, sort of made into an other, an other against which what I call a new bhakti sensibility and identity is forged. Um, identities always require an other and often multiple others um, to come into being, to form um, an opposition to. And I argue that a, a new bhakti identity, and more often than identity, I use the word sensibility, and I can talk about um, why that is, um, arises in this period and that this bhakti sensibility is Sufi inflected and um, tends to use um, the tantric yogi as its other. And I say this is interesting because it's new because as I think I referenced earlier um, in our conversation, um, when you look to the medieval period and through most of India's history to this point, bhakti had been intertwined closely with tantra, yoga, and asceticism. So that's one of my early points, is that when you look at the history of bhakti, it's not this separate category from those things. It's totally intertwined with them. And in fact, in the medieval period, bhakti is most often, though you can find exceptions, but most often subordinated to tantric ritual and um, to jnana or knowledge. Um, 
but by the time you get to early modern North India, bhakti starts to um, take on a different tone and it starts to take on a more sort of um, exclusive understanding of itself in which you don't need asceticism, you don't need yoga, and you certainly don't need tantra. So in caricaturing tantra through the tantric yogi in a particular way that highlights certain um, certain negative values and attitudes, um, a sort of lack of humility and um, a sort of arrogance um, and a self-assertiveness, um, a uh, over-enthusiasm um, for power, um, these sorts of things um, that um, match up um, remarkably well with Sufi um, sort of ethical and um, religious dispositions you see these things emerging in the bhakti literature and in their critiques of, of tantric yogis. So sort of um, defining this new bhakti sensibility, which I say is a very Sufi-inflected bhakti sensibility, largely against a caricatured version of tantra. And that caricatured, caricatured version of tantra, again, they're not, these poets aren't, um, and saints aren't actually using the word magic, um, and rarely even a sort of um, Hindi tr um, translation of the word magic, but the way in which they sort of mock, demonize, subordinate um, aspects of tantric religiosity to bhakti matches up exactly with the way that um, the religion magic distinction has functioned historically um, and sort of magic just becomes um, unauthorized religion. Magic substantively isn't actually anything different. It's just that form of religiosity that is not approved. Um, and that approval might be um, because of political power reasons, but it might be because of moral and ethical reasons. Um, that's how the word magic has functioned historically in, you know, in all kinds of contexts across cultures. Um, but you see that sort of same rhetoric, a sort of religion versus magic discourse happening in the early modern period. And I think that that shows a kind of um, pre-colonial indigenous kind of origin for thinking about Tantra in a particular way that's very caricatured. Um, and bhakti in a particular way, and that I think the real influence for that is actually coming from, again, this sort of Persianate, Islamicate, Sufi um, presence, and all that's happening well before um, the British presence is anything significant, and I think probably um, affects the way that the British and the Orientalist scholars come to see bhakti and tantra, that they're actually affected by these um, pre-existing, um, you know, increasingly dominant bhakti views of, of bhakti and of tantra. Does that make sense? That makes a whole lot of sense to me. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. Um, if I can share just a tiny bit of data from the text that I work on that might be of interest to this conversation. So you may or may not know that I work on, or at least my last book was on the Devi Mahatmya, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the mythological accounts of the great goddess of, of, of Hindu India, um, the text in its current form, and it's a, it's a stable text, dates to perhaps around fifth century C. And in the culmination of the text, uh, the 13th chapter, the final chapter is where 
uh, it's the end of the frame narrative um, where the, the, the glories of the goddess are told by a sage to a merchant and the king. The last chapter is where the merchant and the king now having heard about the goddess's glories, they go off and they worship her. And the religiosity they exhibit, I think would be fascinating for your purposes as well, in that they sit down by the banks of a river, they create a murti, to that murti they offer incense, water, a very devotional paradigm. They sing praises they, to, to, the, to the goddess, but they also fast. It says specifically they restrain their senses and they fast, and specifically that they offer blood of their own limbs. Mm-hmm. And the goddess magically appears before them, boons them in accordance with their desire. The king wants um, social power. He wants his, his kingship back. The merchant wants jnana. He wants insight into insight into the absolute. He wants um, to be freed from the shackles of samsara. And she, she boons him with both. And so in this course of maybe five to ten verses, um, in my view, you have uh, dovetailed devotionalism, asceticism, tantra, jnana, um, really so much of what you're talking about. This is 5th century CE. I haven't heard a quibble from anybody uh, within the Indic tradition or scholars of the Indic tradition. I haven't really heard a quibble in terms of aspects of this, this, this religiosity that were unacceptable in some way or that didn't fit. And yet you can appropriate this very rich religiosity for Tantra, for Bhakti, for a number of, of, of avenues. So I thought I'd share that thought with you. No, that's, that's fascinating. And I think kind of proves um, or, you know, kind of confirms uh, the point I'm making, especially about medieval religiosity and uh, how these kind of um, intertwined threads of Hindu religiosity that you just mentioned, bhakti, asceticism, tantra, yoga, um, and also the sort of pragmatic, um, you know, this worldly stuff versus also the transcendent, all those things are completely intertwined and you can sort of, as a scholar, try to parse them out, but it's very difficult to do. But what's sort of new that I I think is happening in the um, early modern period in North India is those intertwined threads um, are starting to kind of come apart a little bit. And it's, um, that there's some of these modes start to get distinguished from each other, these modes of religiosity um, and positioned against each other in ways that historically they hadn't been. And that's not to say that they were completely merged in the past, um, but it's to say that I don't think there's much evidence that a bhakta is ever positioned directly in opposition to a tantrika or a yogi in much um, medieval literature, but you start to see that, that happening exactly that, in the early modern um, North Indian bhakti literature. And I do think that um, part of that change is the specific kind of cultural context and and Sufi influence, um, which has a very kind of clear um, ethical and aesthetic and emotional kind of outlook that um, just doesn't really fit with um, the way Tantra historically operated it seems to me that the Devi Mahatmya would agree with you. Uh, so one, one final question. 
since we've taken enough of your time for today, and I know you have to go soon. Um, so what uh, what are you working on now? What what are you researching? What are you writing? Um. Well, I would say two separate kind of projects. Uh, one really key figure in my book that we didn't get a chance to talk about is a, a Vaishnava, um, Ramanandi, um, Bhakti poet and saint by the name of Agridas. And um, a, a big ch- there's a chapter just on Agridas because he's little known and um, very important in studying his literature. Um, allows me in the book to really say a lot about how these bhakti communities, um, how they articulated their own identity, how they sought patronage, how they spread and became bigger. Um, So he's a key figure in the book. And in the research for the book, I was able to get a lot of manuscripts of his material. And I've I did not exhaustively treat that in the book by any means. So one project is to further delve into the literature of this Bhakti poet, St. Agradas, and try to do some translations and interpretation analysis um, of that. But I'm also drawn increasingly away from the world of uh, the mobile period and Bhakti that has been my bread and butter. And um, actually I've, interested in a new project um, that would take me into the colonial period and into modern India. Um, And that project would center um, on the sort of modern categories of magic, science, and religion. Um, And they would basically be about the rise of modernity as a process that um, is happening um, in India and in dialogue with the India and the, and the West. And particularly, I would be looking at how these categories of magic and science and religion are crucial to the rise of modernity itself, both in the West and in India. And since that topic is so broad, the whole, um, the key to this project was I'd be doing this through a study of yoga and yogis. And what's fascinating is that depending on where you stand, you can easily make a case that yoga is magical, yoga is scientific, yoga is religious, or perhaps some mix of any of those three. And um, and the same thing with yogis. So I think in in looking at how yoga and yogis during um, both by Indians and by um, Westerners, how they were talked about, how they were represented, um, I think it, it, will provide a fascinating case study for how these um, bigger concepts and categories, magic, science, and religion, sort of um, were the key building blocks for notions of modernity itself, um, even if those played out a little bit differently, ultimately, in India and in, in, in the West. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And uh, I will look forward to inviting you back on the podcast when that work comes out because <laughs> it's certainly one we should chat about so once again um we have been talking with pat nee burchett assistant professor at the department of religious studies at the college of william and mary uh i'm your host dr raj Walkeran with the hindu studies channel of new books network pat it's been great having you on the program thank you again for inviting me to be here until next time keep reading take care <laughs>